a big like wow moment. You're like, okay, that's an epiphany that you hadn't really thought about that your your body is your temple and that mm-hmm. you're the most precious resource that your business has as a sole uh, entrepreneur and you know just purely to give yourself the permission to step away or to share some of the burden. That's one thing in hindsight that I wish I had done. And I often tell other entrepreneurs, it's like, do that. And investors appreciate it too, because just from a risk standpoint, it's better as well. And I, and I think you just are able to propel forward in a faster way by having that. And it uh, allows you to have more balance. The Champagne State of Mind. For many of us, it probably sounds like a pretty nice place to be. Tanya Faulkner, the proprietor and managing member of the French sparkling wine company Le Grand Cortage, brings customers permission to embrace the spirit of joie de vivre and celebrate the art of elevating the everyday, often in ways you never considered before. And it all started with an idea, a vision made real by a seasoned entrepreneur with a business plan who found a need in a marketplace and had the determination to not let anything get in her way. Coming up, You'll hear how a big problem with a label was able to be addressed by going into quick problem-solving mode, the power of networking with other female entrepreneurs and a mastermind group, the true value of a business coach, the challenge of raising money and lessons learned when raising a large fund up front, and getting a big deal with a major airline that was worth popping a cork for. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Tanya, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Excited. I am so inspired by your story of how you started your business, but would love for you to share a background because you first moved to France before you started your business. Correct. Um, so I took the unlikely path in getting here. I was uh, my background's architecture and real estate development, and had very successful career, but sort of looked at you know we all wait to retire to do you know, what you're really passionate about. And I was like, you know what? A lot of people never make it to retirement. And I was living in San Francisco, which is so food and wine centric, and ultimately saw this gap in the category and took the leap and moved to France. And, you know, really as a female consumer, I saw um, the la- level of traditionalism and lack of innovation in a lot of the French wines and domain the Chateau that plain green glass, nothing that visually stood out. So I sort of parlayed my design background with my love of wine and sort of the you know, food and wine and how it brings people together. And so I took the leap with the business plan in hand and moved to France so to convince somebody to say yes. Let's talk about this business plan. Had you started your own business before? How did you put yeah. this together? So this is my third business okay. that I've started, mm-hmm. um, kind of the serial entrepreneur yeah. and um, sort of interesting because it's like I'm one of the unlikely candidates. I grew up in upstate New York, three street town, 400 people. Um bunch of farmers. I'm first person to go to college, but I've always had this innate curiosity. And so I've started two other businesses still operational um, that I'm no longer involved in. And then, uh, so it kind of gave you the tools, uh, you know, if you will, to understand all the different you know nuances that go into it. But certainly a global business in another country was a next level for sure. <laughs> I'm sure. So what was that like? Your first day in France and you've started out in a new country trying to start this business. What did you do first? Um, 
I, you know, you start just like here, you start calling, hi, I'm Tanya, you know, and you, you're you just trying to get the door open. But the French is, well, Europeans in general are not as entrepreneurial in their focus and just were you know, fortunate living here. And so finally got through to this gentleman named Marcel, of course, right? So essentially <laughs> French. And he's like, well, you don't know anything about wine, but really love your focus and attention. And he's like, you get, he's like, you, you get what's needed in the U.S. and because French wine sales had been declining here, but really you're the core consumer. So he ultimately said yes and believed in the vision because I'd sort of articulated on a price palette and packaging standpoint where the gap was and where I thought the market opportunity both domestically and globally. And so fortunately, he believed in me, even though I was so naive back then. I look at what I didn't know. And um, and he said, yes, I lived there for about a year and a half developing everything. So wow. it's my blend, my brand, my trademark, but they handle the production for me. And having grown up in a farm community, I had zero desire to be in the agricultural wow. business and, you know, tend my own vineyards and things like that. And, you know, down the line, who knows what will become. But right now I source my grapes and then work with a partner to develop everything. And can you share the story behind the name? Yes. So uh, Le Grand Courtage means the great courtship. So it's a little bit my story as an American Working with the French, it's blending grapes from different regions because the French, it's very terroir-driven where it's a Burgundy or Bordeaux and they really focus on um, a specific place. And I kind of broke the rules and thought, you know what, I want to use some unique uh, grapes and blend them together. And then lastly, it's sort of that old and new world style and, you know, making something that's um, has a little bit more of an American you know, focus, you know, French cachet and elegance, but an American appeal, if you will. So that's the, the name kind of resonates um, with the overall story. I love that. And every bottle says embrace life, dream big and accept all invitations. How do you tie this to your values and how did you come up with it? Um, I've had this poem on uh, my desk since you know, I was 18 when I started college and called Dream Big. And mm-hmm. it's kind of um, long, but it's been a guidepost for my life. And it you know really talks about if ever there was a time to dare to make a difference, to, to do something worth doing, the time is now. And it's like you kind of the, the moral of the story, you only get one chance at life. And so I've always used that as my sort of litmus test. And, you know, and you think about, you know, seize the day, keep dreaming. And um, I think so often we say, no, I'm tired and this and that. And it's like, you know what, there's so many opportunities that come across. So I've just used that as my personal um, focus, but then how that translates through from a brand standpoint. And it's, it's kind of a state of mind, right? When you think about your um, life is so busy and then, you know, at the end of the day, you're like, oh, I just want to go home. But then a friend asks you out. It's like, you know what? You, you know, if you don't say yes, you miss out on a lot. And whether it's, you know, just enjoyment or networking or whatever. And so it's just trying to infuse that in, across what we do and saying yes more often. Yes, I, <laughs> I love that. And how have your consumers really embraced this? It, it's surprising how many men and women uh, comment on it and really notice it. And it's like how it translates through. And even last night, one of the um, women I was at dinner with, that's also a another brand owner for uh, Pomp and Whimsy. She's like, accept all invitations, right? And so and I see people like kind of say it tongue in cheek and use it uh, jokingly, but it definitely resonates with yeah. a lot of people. And it's something that you can you know, sort of remember. I love that. Is there anything you ever do say no to? <laughs> I'm learning to set boundaries of what you yeah. do. Yeah, right. Because I think we so often we don't say no to work, but we um, say often turn down 
personal things. Mm-hmm. Right? We're such a work culture. And so I think that's where it's saying yes more to personal things and that bring you joy and really feed your soul and learning. And it's like, okay, the, the to-do list is never going to be done and the inbox is never going to be empty, right? This is definitely true. I feel like as an entrepreneur, you know, there's so many people who are reaching out to you and, you know, want to meet with you or events that you need to go to. And there's not enough hours in the day to do absolutely everything. So I think there are times we have to be like, okay, we need to set some boundaries or or limitations. And then like you said, say yes to the fun things with your friends that you (laughs) put off for so many years. Exactly. What year did you move to France? How many years has Um, it been? I moved to France about eight years ago. Lived there for a year and a half while I was developing everything. And then now go a couple times a year, depending on stages of production. How did you know in that first year and a half when you were ready to move back to the U.S. and launch Um, everything? Once... um, effectively when the wine was finished and you know, the, the first bottle was done and put stuff on the water, it's like, okay, now it's time to come back. And where I talked about my um, naiveness, what's funny is I literally like flew home products on the water and I start calling distributors. I'm like, hi, you know, I'm so-and-so. I moved to France. I only had one product at the time, our Blanc de Blanc. And they're like, yeah, that's nice. And I, I now realize like most distributors need a new brand, like they need a hole in their yeah. head. And so they're like, yeah, it was really difficult um, out the gate to get to yes with anyone because they just, there's so many brands that uh, on the market, but then I, you know, sort of, um, created a big win and that kind of put us on the map um, ultimately. How did you keep going when you were hearing so many no's in the beginning? Yeah, I think, well, tenacity is one of my biggest uh, strongs. It's, I think the true sign of an entrepreneur is tenacity and perseverance yeah. and learning to fuse the no. But um, I, I think at some point you're like, I have no choice. I gave up my career. Yeah. I invested all this. And, you know, whether it's the, the fear or shame or whatever that keeps you going, I think sometimes where you're like, oh, my God, I can't look like the fool. And so there's that voice in the back of your head that fuels you. But I also firmly believed in the opportunity. Yeah. And what's curious is, you know, like California is our biggest marketplace. Our distributor has 13,000 individual SKUs in their book, individual items. We're the only female-owned brand. Wow. And so you're just like, how can that possibly be? And so taking a, a female perspective towards it really, I think, allowed us to get to the stage that we are. And we're now you know, top 10% of wineries in terms of size, even though hardly anyone knows us. But it was um, having that sense of conviction and saying like, but, 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 and like just, you know, trying to create the wins, use the stats and remind them of where the opportunity was. Were you using the female angle when you were trying to sell? <clears throat> I think it's sometimes a double-edged sword, mm-hmm. right? I um, I want to be considered a great business, not a great female business, right? right? And so I use it to my benefit um, from the standpoint, it's like, look, I am the core demographic. Yep. My friends are the core demographic. Um, and I often saying like, you know, Mr. Distributor, which sadly the decision makers in the country are predominantly uh, older white men, mm-hmm. just the reality of it. And they aren't the core demographic. So I'm like, look, when you're a very sophisticated wine pilot to you, um, you know, are so caught up in the industry and the way it has been, but it's like, think about who the end consumer is. And so there's so many gatekeepers between getting a distributor, getting a trade account. And so before it even gets to the end consumer, so that's more where I've come from. It's like, here's all the stats, you know, 80% of any 80% plus of buying decisions are made by females. They're commanding the buying power. So you're missing it out on an opportunity to 
take a totally different approach to the industry. So that's where I use the female card of getting them to think differently because I think sometimes it's understanding your audience. And if you're, well, you know, pushing to the in a negative way, yeah. they are more adverse versus if you, um, I like to baffle them with your brilliance. Yes, like I love that. Oh, come baffle them with your brilliance. <laughs> come with all the stats yes. and they're like, then they can't refute it. <laughs> so I saw when I was searching some of your wines online, you came out with this glitter bottle mm-hmm. a year or two ago. How did you come up with that? Um, well, you know, and think that sparkle, like sparkling yeah. wine, it's like make everything sparkle. It's, you know, just that specialness that comes. And it was um, partly just for fun in the holiday season. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it's been, yeah, it was such a hit, but those were all hand done. And it was like, we had, the, we had the assembly line of bedazzling bottles oh for, for months. Cause we did so many of them. So there were all these women in LA, they were just bedazzling bottles. bottles. <laughs> so it was a limited release, but now it's like, Oh, it was a, such a fun thing. But then now people are like, are you bringing the glitter back? But it's, I think it's more that, um, I talked about that state of mind. It's like that champagne state of mind mm-hmm. and like having like just what that, means and comes across as. And so I um, uh, yeah, just did it as a one-off. So I feel like when I walk into a wine store as a female, I'm very drawn to beautiful bottles. So it's interesting to hear you say that you came up with this idea for the sparkling bottle because you want to attract that female consumer who is making the buying decision. Mm-hmm. Well, and even with the regular wine bottles, um, more than 70% of wine is bought off of label and packaging alone. And I often joke that it's like I used to design buildings, now I design bottles. But you think about that four-inch slot on a shelf or on a wine list is phenomenally expensive real estate. So you need some compelling reason for why a buyer wants to bring you in and how it's going to you know, stand out on the shelf. Is it the right price? Of course, the majority of Americans still say I'm drinking champagne. And there's very much that association with France. So that's why I thought if I could... Um, make something that looks expensive. I actually soften the palette profile so it's a little bit lighter. And then that it's that under 20 because I wanted an affordable everyday luxury, something that really elevates the everyday. And it's not about getting drunk. It's not about, oh, the celebratory. It's more just like that me time where it's like, okay, you know, I've finished the day. The kids are in bed. I finished work, whatever. And taking a few minutes for yourself or to connect with your spouse or friends. And for me, really, um, you mentioned growing up in a three street town and, um, and it's so much about that human connection. And, you know, even though I grew up and it was very simple times that, family dinners, backyard barbecues, that's what was really the hallmark and what I so fondly remember of getting people together. And I think in our obsession to be connected with technology, we've lost so much sense of connection. And so it's really great to be part of what brings people together. And it's about just taking a few minutes to celebrate the everyday because, you know, life is challenging, but there's always something great that to you can, you know, take, um, reflect on at the end of the day and like, okay, these, those are the things that keep you going too. Oh, absolutely. So speaking of things to celebrate, can you share some of the big accomplishments that you've had over the course of the past eight years launching this brand? Uh, uh, earlier I alluded to like the, the big win that kind of put us on the map. So I um, started courting Virgin within the first year of launching and it's like, okay, I need to create a big win because the distributors did not want to bring us in. And so after about a year, I finally got to yes with Virgin and they bought 200,000 bottles of our small format ones. And what was so great is they put us 
um, yeah, Virgin has the menus on the seat back and, you know, they've subsequently been acquired by Alaska. So it's different now, but it's like, all right, if I can be captive audience on the seat back negotiated first position, um, then that will, you know, create that brand awareness because everyone that's sitting in the seats, but also it gives a story to tell with distributors. So I think that was one of our pivot points where it's like, okay, now that opened the doors for other things. But I, I would say what's uh, really exciting is that um, we hit a, a critical point. We did 50,000 cases last year that solidly put us in the top 10% of brands. And for small team, very small amount of capital to have gotten to that stage. And we're not yet in chains. And though New York City is not a a chain market so much. You think about Texas, Florida, California, where big grocery stores and things like that. We haven't gone into chains and to have gotten the traction that we have in top accounts from, you know, MGM, you know, Fairmont Ritz, things like that. It's exciting to see like, okay, my dream and the leap that I took is actually working. Wow. So how did you get into Virgin? Just me. Networking, being tenacious, yes. keep calling. Well, and I was like, Branson's all about taking risks and yes. going back to the embrace life, dream big, accept all invitations. I'm like, that so should resonate. Yeah. So I took a very personal approach in pitching that and what I thought um, mattered to their consumer and, you know, that they needed to elevate what they were offering on board. And so it's just was sort of a natural progression. And uh, so, you know, it's so much that it's you're trying to create the compelling story to get to yes. And, you know, whether it's with the distributor or with big accounts and things like that, it's like, all right, you may have to make them want you and come back with all those stats that I was referring to yeah, earlier. absolutely. So how big is your team now? Um, we have 10. 10 people. Yep. So and all women, correct? All women, which I didn't set out to do. And I have had men on my team, but I think it's just become so such an interesting part of the story being that we are all consumers and we sort of live and breathe the brand and we're very passionate about it. And so it's been, um, you know, certainly a really great vantage point or positioning, especially in the last year or two, where there's a lot more focus and attention on female companies and, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, the Me Too or the lack of capital and a lot of conversations that are being had about the inequities. So it's really um, helped put a spotlight on, okay, that not only are we doing it and growing, but um, sort of defying the odds too. Yeah, I love that. Did you raise money for this brand? Uh, yes, I'm. I've raised over three million to date. Okay. Um, hands down, hardest thing I've ever yes, done. Full time job. It's <laughs> <laughs> like yes. And so I'm like, that's why I work a hundred hours yeah. a week because it's uh, truly the most difficult thing. And you know, it's it's so surprising that in this day and age, you know, women get less than 3% of capital, you know, less than 6% of, you know, venture capitalists are females. And so, but yet we're commanding such a big portion of the buying power. And so that's been the hard part because we've um, surpassed 5 million and yet we still struggle in raising despite being, you know, in the top 10%. And so, you know, we're in the middle of capital raise now and it's just that constant. And that's, I think, what um, impedes so many businesses ultimately along the way um, because you just don't have the resources yeah. from a staffing or financial standpoint to propel forward to compete against these massive uh, companies that exist. Did you raise money when you first started the business? I didn't. I self-funded okay. um, initially, but this is my third round. So okay. I probably, I don't know, after 
year, year and a half, I raised a small round and then subsequent and in, in hindsight, I would have gone big and it's like, all right, I'm going to put a big valuation, not worry so much about uh, dilution and raise a lot more out the gate. But I try to be fairly disciplined in my approach. It's like, all right, raise, grow, raise, grow. And it seems like more prudent all around and better for investors as well as for us. But now I look at some of the success stories and they were out the gate raised millions. And I'm like, yeah, I would have done that because it's just ridiculous the amount of time you spend having nothing to do with growing your business. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's a full-time job raising money. So how far into your third round are you right now? Um, we're raising three and I'm a million in. Okay. So. All right. I have some people to connect with. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> Coming up, how a big problem with a label was able to be addressed by going into quick problem-solving mode. And a surprise. As a fellow entrepreneurista, I know that business is not always as glamorous as it looks on Instagram. Can you share more about some challenging times that you've had mm -hmm. and how you've had to persevere and overcome them? Absolutely. Um, I alluded to the success with Virgin, and that was you know, a hard-fought battle and was so exciting. But um, condition precedent for them saying yes and signing the contract was we had to produce a special label. We had to order special dye. So I spent $10,000 before I even knew if they would say yes so that they could test the label in trial. So I did all of that, spent the money, and the gentleman that was in control um, signed off, said everything was great. I produced almost 100,000 bottles of the 200,000. And within three days of launching on the plane, I get this nasty gram. It's like, your labels are falling off. They look terrible. You know, this is breach of contract, da, 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 you, and, you know, cease and desist. And I'm like, <gasps> you know, and just like did, panic. What did you do? Did you start crying? <laughs> I, mean, I, oh, like, I was like, it was sheer panic. Yeah. I like, literally shut my door and I was like, okay, what do I do? Because that could have literally taken the, the company. And I was like, but I'm so confused because we had create, you know, created a special label. They tested it. So how could this be? Well, he never tested it. And so they literally put their products in the equivalent of an a, a ice bucket. So it's beer bottles, Coke cans, milk cartons, our bottles, and they were flying to, you know, LA to New York and back. Well, it's not going to last under the regular paper. So he never tested it, but he was subsequently gone. And now it was my responsibility to figure out. And so it's like, I have no idea what I'm going to do. And this is going to ruin me. And I've hardly gotten started. Oh my goodness. So I came up with the innovative idea of create um, mini Ziploc bags that you could put the um, bottle in. So they were custom made so that it created a waterproof seal and put it in there. So like, okay, we can do that. So all the products were here, we fix it. And then the next batch, we would have to reinvent and do a new label. So they said, yes, we proceed forward. And they're like, you know what? We can't do that. California banned plastic bags. Ah. We're a green airline. That's not going to work. So they're like, all right, now what? And so I actually convinced them to put dry ice on all of their wheelie carts that go down to keep our product cold during the period where we exhausted it, I had to pay for an upcharge for all of that and handle the logistics. But can you imagine just the supply chain logistics of oh every gosh. virgin plane having to have dry ice during the period? And I was like so proud of myself, but it's like it shows you have to be innovative and really try to find a solution because if you don't, you will, you know, could be absolutely destroyed. So that was one of our proudest moments, but 
for sure our most difficult thing that we've had to overcome. When you went into problem solving mode, did you, you know, lock yourself in your own office or did you, you know, join with the rest of the team and start brainstorming, talk Initially, to mentors? Initially it was just me because, you know, as a uh, owner or leader, you you're trying not to dump and you know that that fear can run amok and I think it's so important that you try to just don't dump and instead say all right, here's the problem, here's some opportunity, you know, some things to explore. So after I did a little bit of that soul searching and trying to think through things, then I went and said, okay, here's the plan of attack. Here's what I think you do. Here's what I think you need to explore. All right, come to me with other ideas too. And so it was a little bit of both. But I think that's one of the hard parts of being an owner is how do you um, enlist everyone's help versus also convey leadership and confidence yeah. as well. You don't want to scare the whole team and have them lose confidence, but it's also important for everyone yeah, to come absolutely. together to be able to help problem solve. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that felt good for the team to help contribute as well. Absolutely. And that was when we were, of course, much, much smaller. So it was, I don't know, at the time it was a team of three or four. So there weren't many of us, but I really um, involved my team. I treated it as a we, not a me. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't be, you know, the company couldn't be where it is today if it wasn't for them. And, you know, frankly, I count my lucky stars that I have people that believed in me and the vision and what was possible. And I actually give each of them equity because I really want them thinking about the top and bottom line and really making a uh, solid decision, extra fiduciary responsibilities and thinking, you know, truly as an owner, albeit on a smaller scale and they don't have the same responsibilities or liabilities that I do, but I think it's just important and, you know, out the uh, gate, how I kind of approach building the business. Yeah, I, I love that. And can you tell me a little bit about the type of people you hire, the roles that you hire for? Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. I think that's um, w- one of the other challenges with for startups. And I've... Um, own two other successfully operating businesses still. So I only one year of my life have I worked for a corporation. So I've always worked for small companies or been self-employed. Um, I w- hired a couple people along the way in their journey where they have very credentialed, came from big companies, you know, huge distributors like a Southern or Bacardi or things like that. And um, amazing candidates. But what you realize if somebody's worked for big companies, they're used to big budgets big staffs that they can delegate to. They don't have to do A to Z. It's like, here, this is my role, my domain, and somebody else is handling that. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges with staffing with a small company because not everyone is cut out to really think about all the nuances along the way. And they're just not having to truly used to having to really roll up their sleeves in the same way. So I've changed my approach in hiring. It's like, all right, somebody that's worked for a small company, somebody that really enjoys digging into the details. And I actually do a, um, personality test. Which one do you um, use? I use true colors only because it's so easy to remember. And we actually put, um, constantly share it with the team that's remote or and have it on the doors or cubicles because it's like, okay, now I'm coming to this person. So trying to maximize um, communication um, based on the type of person that you're dealing with yeah. versus the person you are too. Yeah. No, we've definitely learned some of those similar lessons having a, you know, boutique social media agency. Mm-hmm. It's hard to hire people from the the big agencies because mm-hmm. exactly what you said, you need someone who's going to be scrappy, wants to get their hands dirty yeah. and really wants to make a difference and contribute. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah. And you're the, now you're the sole founder you were sharing with me before. Yes. Um, so 
um, sole founder have lots of investors and then, you know, each of the um, team does have uh, equity. Uh, but um, I had actually, when I moved to France, it was with a boyfriend and uh, um, my my dream, my vision, my vis- business plan, but he really believed in it. it's like, oh, we're going to do this together. And then it just turned out to be kind of a nightmare when you don't mix business and pleasure for a reason. But uh, suffice it to say, he was not quite... <laughs> who I thought he was, and it turned into a very ugly partnership dissolution. And so I, within three, four months of launching, I went through a really uh, terrible you know, breakup, kind of felt like a, a divorce because we'd been together and lived out of the country for several years, as well as had to kick him out of the company. And uh, so it was very challenging and it changed the dynamics because it went from party of two and both of us investing time, money, energy yeah. to now just me. And, um, but I think- what you have to realize, like you have to, if something's not in alignment with who you are and it doesn't feel right and you're like, you're in it for the long haul, you have to make decisions that are going to you know, suit you for, you know, five, 10 years yeah. from now. And I think so often money ends up ruling things. And I was like, you know what, I'd rather go under than be, be feel stuck in a situation sure. that isn't, uh, healthy. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, but I think that's where if you can come through those things, that's, um, you know, sort of is the sign of, um, if you can weather the storms, that's the sign of a, a strong entrepreneur too, because that's what ultimately happens along the way. There's pitfalls, curveballs <laughs> daily, every day, weekly, <laughs> every day, <laughs> new challenges yeah, every day exactly. and new opportunities. <laughs> exactly. So who do you go to for advice? I, um, Early on, I'm, I'm the type A perfectionist and always felt like I've got to look like I have it all together and have all the answers. And um, I wish somebody had told me when I was much younger that, you know, you don't have to act like you've got all the answers. And so only in the last, I'd say, two years, really, have I um, I got a business coach, um, which he's I, – I joke that he's like the company therapist. Yes. And um, But it's good because you realize – even if you have an amazing team, sometimes your team's your complaint. Sometimes there's, you know, whether it's HR issues or you're trying to think about, is it the right fit for, maybe it was a year ago, but as you move forward, mm-hmm. is it the right hire? And those are tough decisions and it feels very icky, right? Because there's an emotional component about it. Um, but then thinking about what it takes to become, um, yeah, a top 10, a top 20, if you're projecting ahead, all right, if I want to be at a half million cases, what does that look like? So I brought in a business coach. I joined a mastermind. Um, so that's helpful to really amplify and up level and get perspectives from people in different industries. And then I belong, uh, there's a group of other entrepreneurs where we've really um, allowed ourselves to be very vulnerable, very authentic about what we're going through. And that's been one of the saving graces, I think, because somebody that's in it because your friends and family could be very well intending, but if somebody's not been an entrepreneur, they don't get it. <laughs> I could could not agree more. And I know that one of your big initiatives in giving back is something called Rosé It Forward. Can you share more about yeah, this? Yeah, that was um, kind of a brainchild last year with, in light of everything that's going on in you know the female sector and just so many um, amazing you know, f- uh, female businesses and such. We uh, created this to really celebrate all the strong women that exist in our life and whether it's, you know, uh, at a small scale, but somebody that's just uh, sheds a bright light in, or to the world or other entrepreneurs. And so we created it and it definitely had this viralness where people, influencers, press got excited about it because it was all about positivity and just um, 
showing you know, that you respected something that somebody was doing. And so that's been fun. And we work with a lot of nonprofits like Project Glimmer. And so we try to make uh, giving back, whether it's time, money, product uh, as part of the initiatives, because you're know, very grateful to have the opportunities that we do. Oh, I love that. Well, speaking of surprises and giving to others, if you look to your left of your seat here, we have a special surprise for you. It's an entrepreneurista bag, and if you open the white box in white there. Box. All right. I love when I get presents, yes. too. <laughs> Aw. So some nice designed coasters for you. Beautiful. We know a lot about you now and that you <laughs> love wine so thank and you, champagne. So, so That's yeah. That's so lovely. So some beautiful coasters and looks like a journal and book. All your entrepreneurship swag, yes. Perfect <laughs> Which we always made. Perfect for the plane ride back, too. Thank you so much. Yes, you're so welcome. I appreciate it. And as you probably know from working with influencers and on social media, surprising and delighting your guests Absolutely. and your followers is something that's so important. So we'd yes. love to do that for, for all Thank of you. our guests who come on the, come on the podcast. Appreciate it. Thanks yeah. so much. So let's talk a little bit about your marketing strategy and how you've really been able to spread the message mm-hmm. about your brand. Do you have someone that's focused on your marketing mm-hmm. for your business? I do. Um, uh, my VP, Shauna, she's been with me almost since the beginning and uh, very grateful that she saw the vision early. And she actually used to work for Mandavi when they sold the Constellation. So she's got really fantastic experience building brands from infancy to maturity, understanding life cycles. And after Mandavi sold. Um, Michael Mandavi started Folio, which is an import company. So then she worked on a lot of small import sort of niche brands and which didn't have the big budget. So she had to be much more scrappy and think about it. So she's been a real asset and she's very, um, well, she's, you know, marketing has the big pictures and ideas. She's very grounded and level-headed where I tend to be the dreamer and like, I have an idea, right? It's constant ideas. And she's like, okay, we need to rein it in or that's a great idea. But executionally or from money perspective, we can't afford that. What are so, some of the ideas you've had that you wanted to launch? Oh, I mean, it, it's less so about product, I suppose, as just thinking like, oh, what ultimately is possible. And, you know, even whether it's the Virgin thing, which, you know, as a young brand, people would have said um, no to or um, thinking about, all right, how do you get on like Oprah or something like that and going after some some things. And even one of my uh, recent ideas, um, uh, I came up with this idea of bubbles and books or read and rosé and we've pitched it. I won't go into details because it's um, something we're working on now, but I try to think about what's in alignment where it's not like you're just trying to get a celebrity or um, uh, capitalize on the coattails of others, but you're like, okay, if it really is a great brand fit and you can see that there's an authenticity of that, it's a natural extension for them and us. So that's where I try to think outside of the box and it's like, all right, I don't have the big money, but if they see that it's a fit for the company or the personal brand or whatever, how you can weave some of that in. And we've been fortunate that we have didn't have PR until about a year ago and um, have just been picked up, earned media where it was just natural, organic, and whether it's Martha Stewart or The Knot or The Today Show or things like that. And so, you know, you're just trying to think about where you can plug in that makes sense for them so that you're not just like, Hey, I have this great product. Don't you want to, you know, showcase me, but it's like, Hey, I have a great product that, and here's how it resonates for your audience or whatnot too. 
So a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with when is the right time to hire a PR agency mm-hmm. or a social agency yeah. and when you can really start investing in marketing. How did you make the decision last year to invest in PR and has it has mm-hmm. it helped? It's um, interesting. Like some brands that out the gate, they hire PR and like we're going to create the buzz about it and it works very well for them. But I find that if you don't have the distribution and um, then – it's sort of failure to launch because it's like, okay, well, I've got great press, but you didn't have the distribution. Now, a lot of other brands, um, say the digitally native ones like a Warby Parker Mm. or Bonobo served, um, you know, Glossier Mm. or things like that. It's different because they can sort of ship far different model, but because of alcohol has so many restrictions around it, that in itself just didn't make sense. So I then decided to hire the PR once I felt like we had enough critical mass on a national level that it made sense. It's like, oh, as we start getting more press that it's like, okay, now we should invest the money so that you're driving brand awareness in a more meaningful way. Coming up, the true value of a business coach. You can connect with us at socialflyny.com and follow us on Instagram at entrepreneistas. Check out all our latest episodes at entrepreneurspodcast.com. So we've talked a lot about work and business, but I want to learn more about you and what is a typical day like outside of the outside of the office? Is there such a thing? I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I live in Venice Beach, and um, while I'm not really the beach girl per se, I love the, – the ocean is just such a great recharge. And so yeah. it's like – I feel like the balloon's been uh, pricked, and you're like ah. – and so there's something about the waves and seeing that. So a lot of times, you know, ride my bike on the beach, um, have friends over, we'll play volleyball or whatever, do a beach picnic or um, have people over for drinks on the roof. And for the most part, I say being in this industry because I'm always telling my story and I travel an insane amount – it's the simple things that you really learn to appreciate and it's the time with your family and friends and actually just being home and sort of your creature comforts. And yeah. so that's what I do to you know, recharge and really enjoy you know, the we're so fortunate to live in this country and mm. you know, everything that comes with it too. Do you find it hard to take care of yourself and let yourself relax because you're working so much? Yeah. It's, um, I feel like, okay, I got to relax right now. Mm-hmm. It's like, I have it to go three hours and <laughs> it's, it's a challenge. Um, and yeah, there's always that, um, my, there's always more that you can be doing. And so we talked earlier about, it's hard to, um, set the, the limits, but I've learned, um, you know, as we've evolved, it's like the best thing I can do for myself in the business is to step away. That's when you're really, your creative ideas come up and you're like, you know, you can see things with clarity and you come back refreshed and recharged and you're better for the team. And one of my investors once said, he's like, Tanya, do you realize that if you keep this up, you're not going to survive. And it's like, you know, like, it's not healthy. And he's like, if you die, that's not good for the business. So you, I'm commanding you to take better control yeah. of your, or to take better care of yeah. yourself because that you're the face of the business. Yeah. And so it's so important. And when somebody says that, you're like, oh, okay. And so it kind of gives you the permission because I think when you have investors, one of the challenges, you if you take it seriously, that you have a huge fiduciary responsibility to them and to your team. And so I always was feeling like I, I, there's, there's never enough. There's always more that I can do. And so 
being given that permission and almost being commanded was a big wake up call and helped me shift a little bit too. So it took that investor telling you, you have to do this. Yeah. Because you're not being, you're you're actually being detrimental to the business because if you are sick or something happens to you, then the business probably wouldn't survive. And so that's like a big, like, wow moment. You're like, okay, that's an epiphany that you hadn't really thought about that you're your body is your temple and that you're the most precious resource that your business has as a sole um, uh, entrepreneur. And, you know, offline, we were talking a little bit about, you know, what um, having a co-founder and the importance of that. And I think just purely to give yourself the permission to step away or to share some of the burden, that's one thing in hindsight that I wish I had done. And I often tell other entrepreneurs, it's like, do that. And investors appreciate it too, because just from a risk standpoint, it's better as well. And I, and I think you just are able to propel forward in a faster way by having that. And it uh, allows you to have more balance. Absolutely. I was sharing with you before, you know, I don't know what Courtney and I would do without each other. I was actually on bed rest for 17 weeks of this year due to a complicated pregnancy. And Courtney was able to, you know, keep running the business. And while, of course, it was super hard on her and obviously it was hard on me too, you know, it's it's hard if you're mm-hmm. a sole founder to not have that that backup person mm-hmm. to be able to, to help Absolutely. out in, in times of need like that. Mm-hmm. What would you say inspires you daily? I'm really inspired by all the amazing women that are building businesses and defying the odds and really the whole concept of the collaboration over competition that people genuinely want to help that cattiness and things that people talk about. Like I've been fortunate never to have been um, subject to that in high school or college or whatever. But I think now more than ever, there's just a sense of people wanting to genuinely help and going out of their way to see what they can do. And I think that's really inspiring. And, um, you know, frankly, I just think um, when you take a step back and when you, uh, you look at the challenges of entrepreneurship, I've reframed it with my team instead of saying, I have to, it's like, I get to, because that's a very important distinction. And when you live in this country, we, that we're in a time and place that we can really do and be anything. And so many countries don't have that. And as, you know, period, we have men or women, but certainly women and, you know, entrepreneurialism doesn't really exist in a lot of countries. And so we're just in this amazing time with the the innovation that's happening. And, you know, I think, you know, when you like Inc, Fast Company podcast, like you're just constantly inspired by all these things that are happening in the world. What are your favorite podcasts to listen to? Of course, I love yours. Oh, thanks. <laughs> that, was not <laughs> set, that was not a setup for that. Um, I love um, How I Built This yes. as um, just yeah. fantastic. And I think as uh, scale and raising capital and it's like, okay, I'm not crazy. And often I'm just like, I have an idea of something they said and it's totally different industries, but it opens up my perspective of yeah. something else, but weathering the storms. And I think that's where you, the takeaway is like, okay, I'm not crazy. Cause some days I feel like I'm schizophrenic <laughs> or completely an idiot. And so I think, um, you know, so many of the different podcasts, it's like, okay, it gives you just the conviction. It's like, all right, I'm on the right path. Yeah, absolutely. And as you said before, having that resilience, mm-hmm. you have to be resilient to yeah. be able to keep going and, and make it happen. Yeah. 
So what's next for the brand over the next five to 10 years? What are the plans? Well, I, I often talk about if you don't define the destination, you can't develop the roadmap to get there. And um, you know, I believe in dreaming big and it's part of the motto. And so out the gate, you know, this was not a pet project. I wanted to be small. Like I really saw an opportunity domestically and globally. So we're starting to launch internationally now. And uh, you know, we're in 47 states starting international. And I, my goal is to be in the top five sparkling brands, like in the next five years. And it's like, what's it ultimately take to do that? And you have your roadmap to get yeah. there. I love that. What are you grateful for every day? Well, I, I, I sort of dis, uh, discussed that at the moment, but I, I really do think it's the the people that believe in the vision with, you know, with team and distributors. I'm really thankful for my um, support system, you know, friends, family, and the other entrepreneurs that um, – constantly are your cheerleader on the sidelines and, you know, they're through the, the tears and yeah. like, oh my God, I can't do this anymore. Or, or they're to celebrate the, the wins and the people that really see it. And then, you know, just, uh, um, having the opportunities that we do. So I have to ask you, if you can give our audience one essential wine pairing tip, what would it be? Um, I actually like with bubbles, it's so much this special occasion, you know, weddings, New Year's, I got a raise and bubbles are the most versatile wine from a food pairing. If you talk to sommeliers and stuff. So it's like, I'm just pop the cork any day, celebrate the little and big wins in life. And, uh, you know, really all that we do and all that we are. And so it's like, you know, it's just like art doesn't have to match your couch, but product or your wine goes with anything. And so just enjoy what you like and have fun and experiment. I love that. Is there anything you've learned over the years that you wish you knew when you first started that you would tell an entrepreneur who's just starting their business? And you can name a few yeah. things. <laughs> <laughs> um, have the audacity to believe. Um, I think in our world, people are so quick to say no, and it's yeah. not possible. And so um, believing in yourself, um, diffusing the no, and um, I, so much of it, it's like the fake it till you make it. It's yep. acting acting confident, even if you're shaking in your shoes. And I, so I think uh, it's constantly coming back to, it's like people are going to be quick to tell you no and don't listen to them. Yeah. Never take no for an yeah. answer. You can get to a yes. <laughs> my, my old, uh, my first boss out of college used to say no means maybe and maybe means yes. Yes. And as a 21-year-old, you're like, oh my God, yeah, there are impossibilities that you can't, he was kind of an ogre and you can't make everything happen. But it was such a great learning ground mm -hmm. because people constantly find a reason why something isn't possible yep. versus trying to find the solution yep. to make it possible. Yep. We always say, come to us with a solution, not a problem. <laughs> Just yep. figure it out. There's yep. always a way. What would you say being an entrepreneurista means to you? <laughs> it's interesting when you look at the uh, you know, definition of an entrepreneur. It's like you know, somebody that starts an enterprise and takes initiative and risk and things like that. And so I think um, you have all the normal. It's like male or female. But I think um, that being an entrepreneurista is define the odds. And um, because it's um, so surprising, it's like I think something like – less than 5% of female businesses pass a million dollars in revenue. And there's a lot of solopreneurs and, you know, where they're just working from home and, you know, intentionally more of a cottage industry, but there's so many well-intending that don't make it, whether it's capital or whatnot. And so I just think that it's, um, that the female entrepreneurs are 
doing some amazing things despite what yeah. exists. And, yeah. and it's so fun to see some of these um, unicorns with like Glossier and Away and Lively and like, you know, under 30 pretty much or young 30s and just really kicking butt yeah. and taking on massive industries too. Absolutely. Well, I cannot wait to watch the growth of your brand and everything that you do. We'll definitely be following along and sipping along as well. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your story. I know I learned so much. Where can everyone find you, follow you, and of course, buy your products? Um, uh, Our website is legrandcortage.com, which is L-E-G-R-A-N-D-C-O-U-R-T. AGE.com, which is a mouthful, but Le Grand Cortage. Uh, we have a great Instagram account, always fun, and with cocktail pairings and things like that. And um, we're not yet everywhere, but um, ask your local retailer. Certainly, it helps us a lot. If you if they don't have it, ask if they'll bring it in for you because that really helps tremendously as young brand. Ooh, that's such a good tip. Well, thank you for being here. Thank you. Until next time, I'm Stephanie, and this is the best business meeting I've ever had. Thanks for listening.